Hey, thank you for taking time to watch this video message. Our prayer for you is that God would use this message in a profound way to impact your life. If you're somebody that's had your life impacted by the ministry here at Crosspoint, we would love for you to share your story with us. Simply send us an email at mystory@crosspointcity.com and let us know about what God has done in your heart. And lastly, if you need more information about the ministry here at Crosspoint, simply go to crosspointcity.com and you can find everything listed there. We hope you enjoy this message. Man, as we're getting the stage set up, I want to take a moment and say what I've said in all the gatherings. Man, I appreciate being at a church where uh, we have such talented musicians that they can play a song like that and actually make it sound good. So uh, kudos to those guys Listen, I wonder how many of us in the room, if we were honest, might say that we can totally identify with that song we just heard. That many of our days are spent exercising doubt over hope and faith. That at times we doubt that our lives actually matter and can be used to make a difference in this world. And maybe when we think about death, the doubts intensify, right? Like we want to believe that there's something better waiting for us after we leave this world and, and this life is over, but we're not so sure, right? We have our doubts. And even if we could be sure, we doubt whether or not we'd make it there. Have you ever struggled with doubts like those? I, mean, I know I have more than once, by the way. Maybe you're the person that would confess, be honest enough to confess, that those are the very doubts you drug through the doors with you this morning. If so, here's what I want you to know. It's so important. Please don't miss it. Look, your doubts, no matter how deep-seated they may be, do not have to define you. And the guy that we're going to talk about today, which is the same guy that song you just heard was written about, proves that what I'm telling you is true. That guy's name was Thomas. And he was one of 12 men that Jesus handpicked to be his disciples when he was here on the earth. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Thomas, but when it does speak of him, we get a picture of a very pessimistic, skeptical, doubt-filled man. He was a glass-half-empty kind of guy, the kind of guy that always assumed the worst in every situation. You probably know the type of individual that I'm talking about, right? That Eeyore type of individual that always tries to throw a wet blanket on everyone else's positivity and excitement. We know those people, don't we? If you're that person thinking, I don't know that kind of person, James. Everybody else in the room probably knows that person except for me. James, I wish I could identify. I wish I knew that person. Look, you're the person, okay? You're, you're probably a lot like Thomas, a pessimistic, skeptical, doubt-filled person. I want you to know that, that the greatest, most famous moment of doubt in Thomas's life is the moment we're looking at today. It happened right after Jesus' resurrection, and Thomas oftentimes gets a really bad rap for it. But again, it's important for you to know, he did not let this moment of doubt define him. And I've been praying all week that as we dig into this moment together and we see how the resurrected Jesus responded to this doubting disciple, that we might walk out of this room with greater hope and greater faith, no matter how doubtful or skeptical we may be. So if you have a Bible with you or a device with a Bible app on it, uh, go ahead and get those things out. Go to John chapter 20 with me. John chapter 20. And if you didn't bring anything with you, that's okay. You can feel free to follow along with me on the screens. All right, John 20, we're going to start reading in verse 24. Here's what the Bible says. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, we're going to stop and talk about this for just a minute, all right? But when you read the verses before verse 24, you find the disciples of Jesus hiding out together after his crucifixion. 
They're fearful that if they show their face in public, that they're going to be put to death just like him. So they're hiding out. And on the very first Easter Sunday, Jesus comes bursting forth out of the tomb. He goes to the room where his disciples are hiding, and he appears to them. But as we just read, look, Thomas, he wasn't there when this happened. But why? Well, most Bible scholars agree that it was probably due in large part to the overwhelming sense of grief that Thomas was dealing with or concerning Jesus' death. And when you study the other interactions between Thomas and Jesus in the Gospel of John, the evidence seems to support this. And I'll tell you about those interactions, all right? In John chapter 11, we find Jesus and his disciples secluded outside the city of Jerusalem. And word comes to Jesus that one of his closest friends, his name was Lazarus, has become sick and he's dying. Well, a couple days pass, and Jesus finally says to his disciples, after Lazarus dies, hey, we need to travel back toward the city of Jerusalem, to this little town called Bethany where Lazarus and his family lived, and I need to go there so that I can raise Lazarus up from the dead. Now, the problem was this. All the religious leaders that wanted to kill Jesus, they were in the city of Jerusalem, And the disciples point this out. They they basically say to Jesus, listen, we can't go back toward Jerusalem. That's like walking into a death trap. Jesus, if we go, they're going to capture you and they're going to kill you and and we're going to be with you and this could not go very well for us. So, So Jesus, we think we should hang back. But he kept insisting, I have to go, I have to go, I have to raise up my friend for the glory of God. And then our boy Thomas finally speaks up and here's what he says to the rest of the disciples. Uh, let us go also that we may die with him. What an interesting statement, right? I mean, you can almost hear the pessimism in his voice. Guys, he's made his mind up. He's going whether we like it or not. I mean, we might as well pack our stuff up and, and go with him, guys. Today is the end of life for all of us. Look, it's an interesting statement as well, and here's why. Because it reveals to us just how devoted Thomas was to Jesus. I mean, Thomas loved Jesus. He was a man who truly believed that it would be better to die with Jesus than to live without him. Fast forward to John chapter 14, and uh, you find Jesus with his disciples announcing to them that he's getting ready to leave. He's going to suffer the cross. He's going to die for the sins of the world. And he says to his guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. And then he says, guys, you know the way to get to where I'm going. Now, when I read that John 14 passage, I can almost hear the desperation in Thomas's voice. He speaks up and he says to Jesus, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. So how in the world could we ever know the way? Like he's distraught that Jesus is getting ready to leave. Thinking of Jesus dying is almost too much for him to handle, which is why in John 20, verse 24, Thomas is nowhere to be found. Look, Jesus died. Thomas didn't get to die with him. Jesus left. Thomas didn't get to leave with him. The assumption is that his grief was so great after Jesus' crucifixion that he withdrew from the rest of the disciples to mourn by himself. I'm sure that many of us in the room can probably identify with what Thomas felt like to a point, can't we? I mean, have you ever experienced something in life that hurt so bad that all you wanted to do was be alone? You didn't want to talk to anybody about it. You didn't want to answer questions. Uh, You didn't want people throwing Bible verses at you or offering you like Christian t-shirt encouragement and advice that was only going to make things worse. You ever been there? Look, that was Thomas's emotional state after Jesus's death. And it's so important for us to know that because it helps us to make sense of the next verse. Look at verse 25. 
So the other disciples told him. So by now, Thomas has made his way back to the room where they're hiding. They say to him, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas says back to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Look, here's how I picture this going down. Thomas finally makes his way back to the room where the disciples are hiding. He is emotionally exhausted. His face is probably swollen and red from all the crying he's been doing. Probably just wants to crash out and sleep somewhere. And he walks into a room expecting the other disciples to be in a similar emotional state as him. But instead he walks into a celebration, right? Parties going on. People are happy. They're excited. And the disciples say, Thomas, where have you been, bro? You missed it. Jesus was here. Thomas, he's alive. And Thomas responds. I can just picture it going down like this. Thomas responds, guys, not now. Not now. Not in the mood for this. I don't want to hear these ridiculous made-up stories. Guys, look, unless I see and touch the marks in his hands and his side, I will never believe. And then he drops the mic, walks out of the room. Right, perfect moment for a mic drop. Let me ask you this question. You ever had a Thomas moment like that concerning Jesus? Maybe you're the doubter or skeptic that had walked into the room today and, and your entire life is that kind of Thomas moment. Or like maybe for you, the, the claims of Christianity are so unbelievable that you don't know how anyone could actually believe them. To suggest that a man came from heaven, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a violent death, and then three days later came walking out of a grave very much alive again sounds crazy to you. It defies medicine, it defies natural law, it defies common sense, and maybe you're that person that has declared like Thomas has declared, look, the only way I'm believing in this Jesus stuff is if he shows up in front of me in the flesh and proves to me that he's alive. Look, if that's you, I want to say two things to you if I can, all right? First is this. Look, I get it. I get it. I'm a skeptic by nature. Like, I'm a guy who's never really believed certain things to be true just because someone has told me that they're true. I, I like proof, and I like evidence. So if that's where you find yourself this morning, I just want to say I can totally sympathize with where you are. The second thing I want to say to you is this. As a guy who truly believes wholeheartedly that 2,000 years ago Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead and is alive today, not because someone told me to believe it, but because of the overwhelming proof and evidence that supports it. I want you to know that I truly believe that Jesus can make himself known to you in this place today without ever needing to show up in the flesh. And that's what I've been praying for all week, that, that every person that would walk in the doors this weekend who, who, who's doubting and who's skeptical about Jesus would, would walk into this room and, and experience him in such a way that you would know that he's real, that you would know that he's alive so that your doubts and skepticism could finally be laid to rest. Now look, we're going to talk about that more in just a moment, all right? But before we keep heading down that road, I want to stop for a minute and just talk to all the church people in the room if I can. All right, church people, you are out there, right? You're kind of out there. All right, look, church people, go to verse 26 with me. I want us to read the first part of this verse together. Look, the Bible says eight days later. So eight days have passed uh, from the time Thomas said, I'll never believe unless I, I see him in the flesh. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. As I was studying this passage in preparation for this weekend, this verse just kept jumping off the page at me, and here's why. Because it lets us know that even though Thomas refused to believe, 
the disciples refused to give up on him. Isn't that beautiful? They didn't call like a little meeting and go, what are we going to do with Thomas? You guys heard what he said. He's hard-hearted. He told us straight up, he's not believing in Jesus. We should unfriend him. Uh, We should kick him out of our little Christian club that, that we started around the resurrection of Jesus. That's not what happens, right? They love him. They remain patient with him. They keep including him. Church people, I believe this should speak volumes to us about how we treat the doubters and skeptics in our lives. I mean, we all know Thomases, don't we? People who remain stuck in doubt and skepticism and refuse to believe in Jesus, no matter what we say or what we do, we know those people. Can I ask you this question? How do you treat them? Do you love them? Do you serve them? Do you pray for them? Do you invest in your friendship with them? Or have you separated yourself and written them off as lost causes? Heart's too hard. They told me they're not going to believe in Jesus. It's just a waste of time if, if I keep trying. Can I just tell you that if you ever want to see doubts and skepticisms concerning Jesus be laid to rest in the life of your Thomases, you can't afford to write those people off as lost causes. You've got to do instead what the disciples did for Thomas, and you have to love them and remain patient with them as they wrestle in their unbelief. I read a great article this past week on this point, and, and in it, the writer, he addressed the difference between the standard church model and the gospel model as it concerns doubters and skeptics. And he says, in the standard church model, a person always has to believe before they belong. In the gospel model, however, a person can belong before they believe. I love this. Thomas belonged long before he believed, right? Right? You see, it's my heart's desire that, that this church would look a lot like those disciples, that Crosspoint would be made up of Jesus followers who are willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that people belong despite what they may or may not believe. And if you're that doubter or skeptic in the room today, man, I'm really praying that you would find Crosspoint, this church, to be a church where you can bring all your doubts, all your fears, all your concerns, all your hard questions, and you can continue to wrestle through this Jesus thing while still feeling loved and still feeling like you belong. I could preach on that all day if I just had the time, but I don't, so we're going to keep moving, all right? Uh, Let's keep reading. Back half of verse 26, look. The Bible goes on, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. That's crazy, right? Disciples are hiding. Nobody's getting in this room, and then all of a sudden, ba-ba-ba-ba, here's Jesus, appears out of nowhere, and he says to them, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Look, I'm a firm believer that when you read the Bible, you need to do so with an appropriate tone in mind. Especially when you read stories like the one we're reading this morning. And and when you're reading the Jesus stories found in the Gospels, the easiest way, in my opinion, to do that is to remember the character of Jesus. You see, the danger in reading a passage like the one we're walking through and forgetting the character of Jesus and missing the tone of the passage is this. You will miss how amazing this interaction between Thomas and Jesus truly was. And if you're like scratching your head, James, what in the world do you mean? Let me help you out, all right? I want to reread this passage with the wrong tone and with the appropriate tone so that you can hear the difference, all right? I assume that if left to ourselves, some of us might read this passage like this. All right, Jesus shows up. He stands among his disciples. Peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, Thomas, get over here, man, right now. Come on. Don't look me in the face. You know what? In fact, why don't you just go ahead and take a knee? Stare at the ground while I talk at you. All right, Thomas, look. You wanted proof, bro? Here's the proof. Here are the marks in my hands. Here's the mark in my side. Put your finger here, man. Put out your hand. You want to put it in my side? Do it. Thomas, quit disbelieving and believe. What is wrong with you? 
You ever view Jesus like that? Like he's an angry savior that saves people because he has to, not because he wants to? Can I just tell you, that's not the savior we find in this passage. But let me reread it with the appropriate tone so that you can hear Jesus' heart for all the Thomases of the world. Here's how I picture it going down. Jesus shows up, he stands among his disciples, peace be with you, and then he says to Thomas, 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 come here, man. It's me. It's me. Thomas, you're not dreaming. You're not having a hallucination. Uh, Thomas, I'm not a ghost. Thomas, it's really me. You wanted evidence. Thomas, put out your finger, man. You hear the marks in my hands. Touch them. Thomas, here's the spear wound in my side. If you need to place your hand inside, you just go ahead and do it. Thomas, don't, don't disbelieve. Believe it's me, Thomas. I'm, I'm alive. Do you hear the difference? I want you to know, Jesus didn't appear to Thomas here in order to humiliate him in front of the other disciples. He didn't show up to rebuke or to condemn him for his disbelief. Instead, Jesus makes a special resurrection appearance for this doubting disciple to move him past his disbelief to belief. He meets him on his level right where he is. He's patient with his pessimism. He remains devoted to Thomas in spite of his doubts. He shows him compassion despite his concerns, and he loves him in spite of his lack of faith. And can I just tell you, if you're the doubter or skeptic in the room today, look, this is Jesus' heart for you. Like, he's not mad that you showed up today. Look, oh, you finally decided to come to church, huh? Better get this figured out today, loser, or else. That's not as hard for you. I want you to know I believe that you're here, not by accident, but because God ordained it for you to be here. I believe you're here because Jesus is pursuing you out of his love for you. He's trying to make his way to you with grace, with mercy, and compassion because he wants to do in your life the very same thing he did in Thomas's life. He wants to move you past disbelief to belief. But belief in what? Well, I'm glad you're asking that question. I, I'm going to go ahead and answer it for you, all right? I want you to know Jesus wants you to believe in the very thing he wanted Thomas to believe in, his resurrection. He wants you to believe today that he's alive. And I want to tell you why it's so important for you to believe that, okay? Look, the Bible teaches that every single one of us in this room today has fallen short of being the people that God has created us to be. In the beginning, God created us to be like him, holy, perfect, and righteous. Yet every single one of us is unholy, imperfect, and unrighteous. We're sinners, as the Bible teaches. And I don't know that anybody wants to get on the stage and argue that, right? Like you're perfect and godly and so much like him. I think if we were honest, we'd all confess, no, we've done things that have offended God and have broken his commands. And because that's true, our, our sin has created this divide or this chasm between us and God, and it's left us deserving of both his wrath and his judgment. And the really bad news is this. There's not a thing we can do about it. You can't come to church enough. You can't be a good enough person. You can't follow enough rules. You can't be nice enough to enough people. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation or to make your way back to God. But here's the great news. You ready? God never asked you to. Instead, the God of the universe has made his way to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus has done everything necessary to earn our salvation and to make a way for us to come back to God. Look, out of his great love for us 2,000 years ago, Jesus wrapped himself in flesh 
And he came to this earth to live among us, to live the life that none of us have been able to live. And at the end of his perfect life, he went to a cross and he was beaten for us. He was whipped for us. He was mocked for us. He was spit upon for us. For us, he had nails driven through his hands and his feet. For us, he hung on that cross for six hellish hours with our sin on his back so that God the Father could pour out all the judgment and all the wrath our sin deserved onto his very son. He did that for us so that our sins could be forgiven, so that God the Father would love and accept us both now and in eternity. But the good news is that's not where the story ends, right? Three days later, Jesus comes bursting forth out of the grave, proving that he's stronger than sin, death, and hell, and able to offer both new and eternal life to any who would believe in him as the resurrected Savior. That's why it's important to believe. If you don't believe in the risen Jesus, there's no hope, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, there's no new life, there's no eternal life with God. But when you believe in the resurrected Jesus, all that changes. And this is what we see playing out in Thomas's life. Look, look at verse 28 with me. I love this. After Jesus reveals himself to Thomas, Thomas answers him. And I just picture Thomas falling to his knees in this moment. And he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God... He announces his newfound faith in Jesus. He declares that Jesus is his living God and Savior. And I want you to know that Thomas's life was never the same after this moment. He, like the rest of the disciples, uh, spent his life on the earth taking the news of Jesus' resurrection as far as he could take it. And tradition tells us he took it as far as India. In fact, look, there are still churches today in southern India that are believed to have been founded under the ministry of this once doubting disciple. Isn't that unreal? But not only that, look, not only did Thomas spend his life making the news of Jesus' resurrection known, he gave up his very life doing so. See, Thomas was a martyr like 10 of the other 12 disciples. Because he wouldn't shut up about the fact that Jesus was alive, he had a spear run through his body. Seems kind of fitting, doesn't it? The disciple whose doubts were laid to rest after seeing the spear wound in Jesus' side has a spear run through his body, and that's what reunites him with his risen Savior in eternity. It's beautiful. Look, this is, for me, still one of the greatest evidences of Jesus' resurrection. The fact that we see a group of disciples that included Thomas uh, go from being cowards, doubters, and skeptics after his crucifixion to becoming the bravest, boldest, most courageous men the world has ever known. So courageous, in fact, that they laid their very lives down for Jesus himself. All because, look, all because they saw him dead on a Friday and alive on a Sunday. But can I tell you, that's always what happens in the lives of people who believe in the resurrected Jesus. When you know him, life changes. Everything becomes different. And can I just tell you, because I love you, if you say you believe in the resurrected Jesus and life hasn't changed, there's a chance that you have believed in someone or something other than him. When you know and you become a new person, the Bible teaches that the old you passes away and the new you takes its place. Those things that once held you in bondage don't hold you in bondage any longer. Jesus replaces old thoughts with new thoughts, old desires with new desires. Things that once mattered don't matter anymore, and things that should matter start to take their rightful place in your life. You find that life has purpose and meaning. Your joy is no longer dependent on external things or circumstances, but on Jesus and on him alone, and it gives you a lasting hope that even death cannot take away from you. Look, I'm believing this morning that some of us walk into this place, and we're desperate for that kind of hope. We're desperate for that kind of new life. Maybe you walked in and you're thinking to yourself right now, I need that. Something's got to change for me. 
I can't keep waking up and living the same life I live every single day. I can't keep struggling with the same things I struggle with every day. I can't keep wondering what's going to happen to me after I take my final breath and I leave this earth. I just want you to know, again, all that can change for you today by believing in the resurrected Jesus. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that in just a moment so that all he has for you can be yours. But before we go there, I want you to see something. All right? I asked a friend in our church to share his story with us today. This is a guy who spent 29 years of his life as a doubter and as a skeptic. And his story is a powerful testimony of what God can do in the life of a person who finally lays down all their doubts and believes in Jesus as the resurrected Savior. So let's check out Andy's story together. Hi, I'm Andy. I work in um, IT for an insurance company. And I've been a Christian for 19 years. When I was growing up, uh, my, my family didn't go to church. Uh, my parents didn't believe in God. They didn't believe in Christ. And so that's pretty much the environment that I grew up in. I thought that there wasn't, you know, there wasn't an afterlife. I, I didn't think that, uh, you know, I didn't think there was a God. I mean, I was truly an atheist. And I remember one time pretty vividly, there was a time when I was in third grade and uh, I made the mistake of telling somebody at the lunchroom table at school that I didn't believe in God. You know, you could have heard a pin drop after about five seconds because everybody just started looking at me and, and uh, you know, I felt real self-conscious. And, and I remember even one of the lunchroom ladies, you know, made some comment like, you know, I, Ooh, I don't even want to be close to him or I don't want to touch him. Um, and that really, really turned me off, um, you know, and I think that it took me a long time to get over that. Um, that was pretty damaging from a, from the standpoint of, you know, here's a young kid, not really knowing at what end it was up and, and uh, you know, made the mistake of, of admitting to, to would-be friends that, you know, hey, I don't believe in God. I, I don't think there's a Christ. And, uh, you know, that, that really, really, uh, I guess it hurt, you know, for, for a long period of time. And, you know, there was a little bit of that all through school. Um, you know, I was definitely in the minority, definitely an outsider. When I looked around me, you know, I saw some friends that said that they were uh, Christians, but, you know, really they weren't walking the walk. Um, and, and I kind of, that just kind of added fuel to the, to the flames, I guess, of me, me not believing in, in uh, God or Christ. I was helping a band set up at, at my fraternity house and uh, something went wrong with the way the power was, was connected and before I knew it I was flat on my back holding two jumper cables that uh, you know had, had you know, 120 volts going through them straight, straight from a power box. So went to the hospital, doctor said it was a miracle that I was alive because it was probably a couple of minutes. I had you know, burns all over my back and still had scars on my fingers from where, where I had uh, been holding the, the cables. Yeah, I don't think it's possible to go through something like that and, and really not start to think, you know, hey, maybe I'm here for more than just the reason that I think I am. You know, maybe there's more to this life. And, um, and then maybe along that same time period, um, somebody from the Campus Crusade from Christ was coming through the dorms and, and uh, you know, gave me a copy of Joshua McDowell's um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict book. And I, I read, kind of skimmed through that and read a little bit of it. So I started pursuing and, and, and studying and, and, and looking. And, and, you know, I think there was a... It was a time um, that I was on travel for, for work, and um, you know there was a, it was just a real stressful time, in, inwardly stressful for me because I was away from my family for long periods of time, and and uh, you know it was just really hard for me to cope, and uh, and and I think God God took that time and and just made me realize that hey, there's a there's a chance for you to to be um, you know put right with me. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what, what happened in your past, it doesn't matter what your, your beliefs were, it doesn't matter that, that, you know, 20 some years of your life have gone by, 
you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm here for you anytime. And, uh, and um, you know, I'd heard people talk about the, the, the prayer and, um, you know, I just, I was actually driving in a rental car and uh, I stopped, pulled off the road, and, and that was the point where I gave my life to Christ. I'd like to be able to say that after I accepted Christ that you know, I, I made great choices and, and uh, you know, did everything right. Unfortunately, my wife and I grew apart and um, she chose to end our marriage at some point. I will say that had I not had Christ in my life at that time during our separation and, and eventual divorce, um, I don't know where I'd be today. I was a mess and um, you know, it was probably weeks and months before I could sleep right and eat right and, you know, just, it, it just, things really, really kind of tore me up, um, you know, being separated from my children, separated from my, my wife, um, and it gave me a lot of time to think and reflect on what, um, you know, I guess aspects of Christ that I had never really thought about or, or experienced before or had to, you know, really, really come face to face with. I'm most thankful for an opportunity to, to start, you know, to have a fresh start, you know, I mean, that's what. Um, that's what Christ is all about, you know, is giving, giving second chances, you know, and I think that's really um, what I'm most thankful for is, is having, having made that decision early enough to where the rest of my life I can, I can devote for Him and having been given that chance to, to do that, so an opportunity. So if you're that person here today who's like my friend Andy and you know, you know, it's time. It's time, today's the day I finally have to lay down the doubts. I finally need to push aside the fears, the concerns, the skepticism. And today's the day that I finally need to believe in the resurrected Jesus so that hope and new life can be mine. If that's you, look, I want to help you do that right now. So I'm going to invite us all over the room just to bow our heads and to close our eyes. As we're doing that, look, I just want to remind you, no matter who you are in this room today, God loves you. He loves you more than you can ever comprehend. You haven't done too much. You haven't gone too far. You haven't failed too miserably. Your sin is not too great. God loves you and he's proved his love for you through the life, the death, the resurrection of his son Jesus. And today the God of the universe wants a relationship with you. And he wants to make you into the person that he desires you to be. And he wants to give you eternal life. So that after you leave this earth, man, you can be with him. And so if you need that, if you need to say yes to Jesus today, I'm going to help you do it right now. I just want you to know this prayer that we're going to pray, it's not a magic prayer. Prayer doesn't save people. Jesus saves people. I'm not getting ready to impart anything to you. I just want to help you, like Thomas, uh, to make a declaration of, of who you believe Jesus to be and what it is you need him to do in your life. So if you need to say yes, man, just say something like this in prayer right now. Say, Jesus, I confess right now that I'm a sinful person and that my sin is keeping me from you. But Jesus, I believe that you loved me enough to come and to live the life I couldn't live, to die the death that I deserved, and to raise from the dead so that my sins could be forgiven and so that I could become a new person. Jesus, I'm saying yes to you as my living God and Savior. God, I need the new life and the eternal life that, that you have for me. I lay claim to it. I say yes.